And let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 19. As we've noted throughout the service thus far, today is Palm Sunday. It's a day which marks the start of the church's remembrance of our Lord's Passion Week. Our Lord's Passion Week. In other words, what we're saying is that this is the week that we and the church has historically celebrated our Lord's accomplishment of the pinnacle of His ministry here on earth. Everything was pointing to what took place in this week. This is the week that He fulfilled the purpose for which He came to this earth. He, he suffered, He bled, He died, bearing the full weight of the wrath of God towards sin, providing salvation for every sinner who would believe on His name, and we celebrate next Sunday His rising from the grave as a seal, as a, a testament to the, to the finished work and the acceptance of that sacrifice by His Father. I have to admit that I wrestle long and hard every time we come to a holiday with what exactly to do when I come to preaching on that day. Those of you who have been with us for some time know that my personal preference would be to just keep going with our our series that we are working through. told you last week, though, the Lord had been laying on my heart the need to step aside from Genesis for at least this week, to, to set aside Genesis for this Passion Week, to focus in on some things that I think our hearts need, my heart needs. I think we all could really focus in this week intentionally, need to focus in intentionally this week. I believe we do well to spend this week saturating ourselves once again with the truth of the gospel. Thinking about what we have received from our great God in Christ. There's so many truths and so many passages and so many implications of these realities, I want us to take some time this week to consider these things deeply and to walk in them. With that in mind, I want to turn to this text. It's a fitting text for Palm Sunday, Luke chapter 19. I want to begin at verse 28. I want to read down through verse 44. This will be our text for this morning where we read this. And when he, that's Christ, had said these things... He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on the entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just uh, were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of it." And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Ol- down the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, a simple read through of this text reveals that this is Luke's record of our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. All four of the gospel writers record the basic details of Christ's approach and His entrance into the city on that first Palm Sunday. Luke's record is clear, it's plain. As Jesus approached the city, He sent two of His disciples ahead to retrieve a donkey for Him to ride on. He gave them clear instructions about where to find it and He told them what they should say if they were questioned Matthew's records of these events actually tells us that this was all done to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah had written. In Zechariah 9 and verse 9 where he wrote this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Just think about it, friends. This prophecy penned by Zechariah some 500 years before Christ came was being fulfilled in detail on this day. God again keeping His word as He always does. When the disciples returned with the donkey, they they put their coats on it, they set Jesus on it, and He rode into the city just like the prophet had said that He would. I think it's important for us to remember, though, that he, he didn't ride into the city without an audience. He wasn't just coming in quietly. He came in to the shouts of the crowds of his disciples as they spread their palms and their clothes on the road before him. And they cried out, the text tells us, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, there are a couple of things I think worth pointing out right here about the praise that was offered by the crowds. The first thing I want you to notice is this, that the Pharisees were indignant. Religious leaders were angry about it. It says in verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop them. Don't don't receive their praise. Don't, Don't let them say such things. You see, the religious leaders who were present that day were infuriated by what they saw and heard That they couldn't believe that the people would offer praise that was supposed to be reserved for the Messiah to a man that the Pharisees did not believe was the Messiah. This praise is not for you. This praise is for one we're waiting for. You're not him. Don't take the praise of the people. In fact, silence them, Jesus. I think they were equally enraged, not only by the praise being offered by the people, but by the fact that Jesus received it. Jesus accepted the praise of the people. This is why they told him to rebuke his followers, to silence the crowd, stop them from speaking like this. Clearly, the Pharisees were indignant. But the second thing I want you to see here in the passage is this. Jesus was worthy of this praise. 
In fact, in verse 40, he just answers them this way. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Praise is fitting for this day, he said. And praise befits me. Hmm. You know, the Pharisees refused to accept this reality. They refused to accept that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. But praise is exactly what the prophet, you remember this? I just read this in Zechariah 9, what the prophet had instructed the people to do when they saw him coming like this. Zechariah 9, 9, what did it say? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. When you see your king coming like this, shout for praise. He is worthy. He is the one. He is the king of the Jews. See, he was worthy of all of the praise that they offered in that day and for so much more. So much more. He was so worthy of praise that had had these people failed to praise him, the rocks all over that hilly countryside would would have shouted for praise of him. The scriptures are absolutely clear about the fact that Jesus was and is the sovereign king who reigns as Lord over all. And all through his life, there were testaments to this reality. This was not a new thought in our text. In fact, all the way back at his incarnation, as he was announced to Mary in Luke chapter 1, we read this, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Even before his birth, the fact that he was the king was being announced. Do you remember who it was that the wise men said they were seeking? Matthew chapter 2, now after the birth, after, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When he was calling his disciples, Nathaniel recognized something in him when he had his exchange, when Philip brought him. John chapter One, we read this in verses 43 and following. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law, uh, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Christ himself did not deny that he was a king. In fact, As he had his exchange with Pilate, he made it very plain. He was a king over a kingdom. In John chapter 18, we read this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Notice he recognizes the acknowledgement of Christ. I am a king, just not the kind of king you think I am. So you're a king? Jesus answered, this is an acknowledgement. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. At his crucifixion, Pilate apparently was so convinced by his interaction with Jesus that he was very particular in how he wrote the superscription that went above his head on the cross. In the next chapter, John 19, we read this. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written I have written. Friends, this truth is all through the life of Jesus. In fact, it continued after its resurrection. It continues to this day. Because of his humiliation and his crucifixion and his resurrection, he has been exalted and listened to the kingly language that Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 2 when he says, And being found in human form, Christ Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, Master, King, to the glory of God the Father. And friends, hear me, the earth and all the nations still await the day when His reign will be made complete. There's an already not yetness to His reign. But here's what we read in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. Friends, hear me. King Jesus was, He is, and He will always be worthy of this praise. We forget it ourselves. 
In light of all this, we have to conclude that the declaration of the crowds on that first Palm Sunday was not just wishful thinking. It was not just people caught up in a frenzy. It was not just people who, 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 who didn't have truth before them. Whether they understood it all fully or not, this was a declaration of undeniable truth, a proclamation of the praise that Christ was completely and eternally deserving of. This is what is going on. No wonder, he said, if these were silent. The very rocks would cry out my praise. He was worthy. At this point in the story, in Luke's record, Luke tells us something that all of the other gospel writers do not. He inserts a little detail here, and this is where I want to zero in this morning. It's a detail, I think, that should captivate our attention, especially in light of who the Scriptures tell us this Jesus was. The sovereign Lord, the King, the the righteous judge, the Scriptures tell us elsewhere, who will come to judge the nations and make all things right again. But in verse 41 of our text, we read this. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. And we need to pause and consider for a moment, what does it mean that he wept? Was was this merely that his eyes got a little wet? Does that mean a few tears maybe sneaked out of his eyes and trickled down his cheeks? He had an emotional moment. Friends, this doesn't mean that he paused and was touched deeply and shed a tear and blew his nose and moved on with life. The language here refers to an intense grief that moved him so deeply that he wept and he sobbed over the city that lay before him. He saw the city and he was moved within himself deeply with grief. And he wept. There aren't many times in Jesus' ministry we're told that he wept. This is one of them. And we need to ask, I think, what, what exactly was Christ weeping over? The text tells us that Christ descended the Mount of Olives from the hill country nearby Jerusalem. And from that vantage point, he would have had a clear view of the city. He would have been able to see the walls and the buildings, maybe the Temple Mount. He would have been able to to see what what lay there across the way from him. But was he weeping over buildings? Was he weeping over stones? Was this just... Sentimentality? Was the city that he wept over something else? Clearly, you you and I know Christ was not weeping over buildings. In fact, friends, just like the church is not a building but a people, hear me, a city is not buildings but the people. I want you to think this through. 
As Jesus neared Jerusalem that day, the people of the city came out, the disciples were there, and they were praising him as their king. And they were rejoicing over a, a peace they described that they thought had come, he had come to bring them here and now. You've come to bring peace. They've wanted him as their king before, right? When he fed them, and they wanted to make him king. This isn't the first time there's been such a rejoicing over the idea that Jesus had come to be king. They're actually singing about peace here. They they thought they knew what was happening. But friends, our Lord knew what was coming. They sang of peace, but destruction was looming. They all claimed to be His, but He knew all of their hearts. And friends, his heart was broken over the brokenness of the people. Don't miss this. Our Lord was genuinely moved with heartfelt compassion over the people of Jerusalem. People who desperately needed him, whether they knew it or not. One commentator made these Remarks about this text. I thought it was insightful. Spence wrote this. All the shame of his mockery. All the anguish of his torture. Was powerless to extort from him a single groan. Or to wet his eyelids with one trickling tear. But here all the pity that was in him. Overmastered his human spirit. And he not only wept. But broke into a passion of lamentation. In which the choked voice seemed to struggle for its utterance. They couldn't beat tears out of him in the days that followed. But on his way into that city, he wept over Jerusalem. You see, this passage clearly expresses the agony of the Savior over the lost. Over the lost. The last four verses of our text. In verses 41 to 44. There are four different descriptions of the brokenness of the people that Christ wept over on that first Palm Sunday. What I want to do with the balance of our time is just consider to wrestle with you and with this text. About the truths that we find in these four verses. I want you to see four descriptions of the compassion of Christ. In his words that he spoke over the city that day. The first thing I want you to see is this. I want you to see Christ-like compassion grieves over the ignorant. It grieves over the ignorant. Look at verses 41 and the beginning of verse 42 with me. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things... That make for peace. Oh, they were singing of peace. They didn't know what would really bring peace. Can't you hear the sorrow, even the longing in our Lord's voice as he, He cried out those words? Would that you, even you, had known. What's He mean? 
They didn't know. They didn't know what they needed to know. Clearly, the people in Jerusalem were ignorant about what really mattered. They knew about Jesus, but they didn't really know him. They knew what they could get from him, but they didn't know him. His fame had spread throughout the land, but the the people did not know the true eternal significance of his presence among them or of his ministry to them. In fact, Jesus on the cross a few days later will actually cry out to the Lord, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. They don't know. Let's face it, friends. We are not very good at sympathizing with people who don't know what we know. In fact, I think it's hard for us to imagine people who aren't acquainted with the, at least the basic truths of God's Word, right? After all, we live in America, a Christian country, right? Truth be told, our memories have a short lifespan. When I say that, I mean this, that once we learn something, we quickly forget what life was like before we learned it. We, we don't remember what ignorance was like now that we know it. To add to our inability to connect with the ignorance of unbelievers, friends, let's just be honest. Many of us have even grown up in homes and in social settings, maybe within churches where we have been taught about Jesus from early childhood. In fact, if we're honest, we do not remember a time when we did not know about Jesus. Our parents sang hymns to us while we were still in the womb. We need to face the facts, friends, that the majority of the people around us do not know the Scriptures or the truths that they contain. They don't know. They don't know what they don't know. Friends, these people, they need to be instructed in the truth of God's word. Specifically, the truth of the gospel. I'm instructed when I read the triumphal entry story from Luke and I see my Lord on his way to die. Weeping over the people who didn't know. They were ignorant and it broke his heart. Friends, Christ like compassion grieves over the ignorant, but secondly, I want you to see that Christ like compassion grieves over the blind. Again, verse 41 and into verse 42, we read this. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
You can't see it. It's right in front of you. You can't see it. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had spoken that there were things that had been revealed to certain ones and kept from other ones. What a sobering, sobering thought. Jesus wept over the city that day because its people did not understand the significance of what was going on. They just couldn't see it. They were blind. They were spiritually and willfully blind. Compounding the fact that there are certain things God had withheld from them. Friends, they were also blinded by tradition. They thought they understood. They thought they saw. Thus the Pharisees said, silence the people. We're expecting a Messiah and you're not Him. They were blinded by tradition. They were blinded by their pride. We're Hebrews. We're Jews. We're children of Abraham. Don't you tell us anything. Blinded by their pride. Scriptures elsewhere tell us they were blinded by the enemy of their souls. They were blinded by the deceitfulness of their own sinful hearts. They were blinded by the things that were hidden from their eyes. The fact of the matter is that Jesus was not who they were looking for, so they did not see Him for who He was. How many times have you and I missed a turn because we were looking for a particular landmark, but it was only visible from the other direction when you approached. And I didn't see what I needed to see because I, I was looking for something else. They weren't looking for this one. And they couldn't see him when he came. You know, Jesus issued a, rel- a related warning to one of the churches in Revelation, one of the churches in Revelation, when he said in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, these words, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea was a church that saw what they wanted to see. They saw their seeming prosperity in the world. They saw how well they were. They thought of themselves as blessed, and yet they were blind to the true state of their own souls. Couldn't see it. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that this is the state of the lost who are yet Outside of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read this language. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, the enemy of their souls, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Friends, is there a sadder statement in Scripture? People going along, thinking of themselves as doing just fine, blinded from the very light that should shine in their hearts and save their souls, but they cannot, they cannot see it. How sad 
It is to be spiritually and even willfully blind. But I got a question. How do you and I respond to the spiritually blind? With compassion? With sympathy? Or with an arrogance that thinks they're in the way, they're messing up our country, they're the problem. They just get out of the way. We could, what, live the lives we want? They can't see. Is there a compassion? Christ-like compassion in your heart and mind for the blind. You see, friends, truly compassionate souls grieve over those who are spiritually blind. Grieve over them. We said the Christ-like compassion grieves over the ignorant and Christ-like compassion grieves over the blind. But thirdly, I want you to see this. Christ-like compassion grieves over the condemned. Over the condemned. Look at verses 43 and the beginning of 44 where we read this. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down to the ground, uh, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. In these two verses, Jesus speaks of the coming judgment that will fall upon Jerusalem. Because they will not accept Jesus as their Messiah. The people who populated that city of Jerusalem would be judged by God, he says. The city would be ransacked and destroyed and the people within it would be killed. It's a terrible thought. The one who knows all things is looking at a city and he can see what it will look like in 70 years. You can hear the shrieks and the screams of the dying. And it moves him. No wonder he wept that day. Just think about it. Is there anything worse than the thought of the righteous judgment of God falling upon unrighteous people who reject him? Is there anything worse than the prospect of righteous, just, eternal, and inescapable condemnation that will fall upon sinners who perish outside of Christ? I was in college. Our college president used to rehearse with us and remind us that the most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. And we yawn and say, pass the sweet tea at lunch. Just give me more of mine. Just make sure I'm comfortable and I have what pleases me. Our Lord wept over the condemned. He was moved 
by the future of their souls. Are we? Are we? The Apostle Paul didn't think there was anything worse than this. His heart was plainly broken by the thought of his countrymen, his own, his own kinsmen, going to a Christless eternity. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, he says some words that have astounded me my, my whole believing life. Paul wrote, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. It's as if he knows what he's about to say. No one's going to believe he really means. I am speaking the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Ghost. He brings God's name into it. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I would like to tell you my compassion for my lost fellow citizens rises to that level of commitment. Paul said, I, I'd give up my own salvation if it would mean the salvation of their souls. That is compassion. Oh, my friends, genuinely Christ-like compassion grieves over the condemned. Grieves. Christ like compassion grieves over the ignorant, it grieves over the blind, it grieves over the condemned. Fourthly, this morning, I just want you to see from the text Christ like compassion grieves over the disbelieving. The disbelieving. Look again at verses 43 and 44 where we read, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Final cause of our Lord's heartbreak at first Palm Sunday was at its root unbelief unbelief according to this text all of this calamity would come upon Jerusalem because the people had failed to recognize and trust in their Messiah when he came to them they did not believe that God was coming to them and longing to save them I told you they didn't seek Jesus for who he was in fact, this is exactly how John explained uh, in the first chapter of his gospel. What he explained in the first chapter of his gospel when he wrote this in John 1 and verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He came, he taught, he ministered, he did miracles, he served them, but they wanted nothing to do with him. They didn't receive him. He came to them, they rejected him. 
This is what is meant by the phrase in our text, you did not know the time of your visitation. It's what's meant by that phrase, you did not recognize, you did not receive the time of your visitation. John went on to explain in that text in John 1 that those who receive rather than reject Jesus Christ are welcomed into the family of God. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Keep reading. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Since I have to admit, this last group in our text that I have the hardest time being compassionate toward. People who have the truth right in front of them. Who hear the proclamations of access to it. And who reject it. I have a really hard time. I have most of my life. With having compassion for the unbelieving. The disbelieving. They've seen it. They've known it. They've tasted it. I don't want it. Some of you know this about me, but for years my mind was made up that I was going to serve God overseas. I grew up on a mission field. I was headed back to a mission field. I didn't want to stay in the States. It took a long time for me to realize what was going on in my heart. I, I can say honestly, I believe honestly, I was burdened for the lost on the mission field. People who I had come to know and love because I'd grown up with them. In some ways, I grew up as one of them. But the truth of the matter is that my heart was, was hard, even bitter, toward the people here in the States. There were some cultural things because of how I grew up, about how I thought about Americans, loud, obnoxious Americans. But as I thought about it, I began to realize that there was something deeper going on there. You see, I love history. And what I realized was that the people in the United States have had the gospel since the founding of this country. The reason so many people came to this country was for religious freedom. They were, being, they were being chased out of their countries in Europe. They were being persecuted out of those countries. So they came here with the gospel. If we're honest, we would have to acknowledge that since those days of the founding of this country, by and large, this nation has rejected the gospel. 
In fact, right now, the gospel is being put up to public mockery at every turn. I remember being in college and saying words I've regretted ever since. When a classmate asked me, why won't you just stay in the States and use your gifts here? Why would you, in fact, he said, why would you waste your gifts in the mountains of some foreign country? And I said, this country has had the gospel since its founding. Let them go to hell. Let them go to hell. I'm not proud of that, but I did say it. Sometimes I wonder if we don't all struggle with that a little bit. Is it possible that we look around, we see this world and we see this country that we love? And suddenly we begin to think, they may be ignorant, they may be blind, they may be condemned, but they have had their chance. They've had their chance. And friends, I would say that such thinking results in hardened hearts that angrily pray for judgment rather than compassionately weep prayers for mercy. For the lost. Could I ask you this morning? Friend, is your heart broken by the ignorance, the blindness, the condemnation, and the disbelief of those outside of Christ around you? Is your heart broken? Are you moved with compassion toward them? Or friend, might we have to admit we're simply annoyed by and inconvenienced by and maybe even embittered toward them at times? Because it just makes our lives harder, right? It's so much easier they just get in step. So much more peaceful. Life would be so much calmer. I wouldn't have so much opposition, so many, so many fears and so many concerns if they'd just get in line. And what happens? It reveals a heart that is hardened toward the lost. They're not my mission field. They're just a speed bump to the life I want to have. They're not those who need our ministry. They're just in our way. And my prayer for us this morning is that God might move in us with the compassion of Christ. 
the king came and was on his way into the city to suffer. And still, he wept. I wonder, do we? By God's grace, may we grieve over and may we minister to the lost around us as our Lord did. To that end, let's pray that he might give us broken hearts for broken people. Father, you have brought us to this week once again. Special week. Many good and much needed reminders. Father, I pray for my own heart, for all of our hearts, We might be moved with the compassion of Christ. Father, may we try on this shoe, and if it fits, may we be moved by you with repentance, confession, and move to compassion. Father, I pray that you would cause us to look on our city, on our nation, and on the nations of this earth with Christ-like compassion. Father, we are so prone to being most concerned about ourselves. Might we inherit some from the word of the heart of Paul, who had the heart of Christ, that we would be willing to lay ourselves down, our rights and our conveniences and our good, what we view even as our best for the sake of the good of others. We thank you that Christ had such compassion for us. Thank you for your salvation. Father, may we not have short-lived memories of what it was to be unsaved. But may we be moved to call others to put their faith and trust in Christ alone to save them. May they come to know the glories of the gospel and the salvation that we have received in Christ. And we'll thank you and we'll praise you for what you do in us and then through us because of this morning. For it's in Christ's name that we pray these things.